Good afternoon, this is Gary Cavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been fine. It's all been too exciting and too wonderful to be alive in the world. When I listen to, to the tone of your voice, I can hear the barely contained excitement and joy. And certainly not a man who wishes to be anywhere else but this, and or possibly still asleep. I have not been still asleep for quite some time. I've, I'm looking at the clock and I'm estimating that my awake time now is in excess of two hours. That's a wise position to take, Michael, because sleep is the cousin of death. It's a very close relation. It, the number of people who confuse sleep with death and end up waking up dead is very large indeed. The most dangerous place in the world is a bed. Then again, of course, you don't have to sleep in it. I... Like, I'm sure many people out there, I, I knew a man who only slept in a chair on the basis that everybody he knew, or most of the people he knew, seemed to die in bed, and therefore he decided that wasn't going to happen to him. He was a man without issues, I would say, other than the fundamentally large psychiatric and psychological issues. But other than that, he was a healthy and happy man. But he also had back problems and a desperate, desperate desire not to die. Yeah, that seems very popular these days. Never really got it myself, but a lot of people I know are very, very strong on that. Yeah, I, it's not that I'm opposed to it. I think in the particular case, the man I was talking about, I think it was also connected with he was it wasn't so much death that he feared, but the afterlife for whatever reasons. And I didn't know him sufficiently well, nor was I sufficiently interested to delve into it. He had a sense that he thought the afterlife wasn't going to go well for him. However, I would have thought that there there were other options other than sleeping in a chair. So in a world where yesterday the God King was crowned, in what, if anybody was following it, I'm told, looked exactly like a, a Catholic ritual link with, uh, with a, a Protestant oath thrown in, which is not surprising, guys, since it's actually based on, I think, a ninth century version, uh, which is the first of the, uh, the rite for the coronation of the Holy Roman Emperor, which was then remodeled and copied by St. Dunstan, Dunstan, and has been in use ever since. One thing about the English, Gary, they don't throw stuff away, well, at least not willingly, you know. They keep it in the cupboard there and they keep using it, you know, the principle very much, well, you know, as long as he can still use it, why, why get a new one? And I think that's an admirable attitude to life. The thing on the coronation, and the only thing on the coronation I noted, is that despite so much Irish media talking about how they don't care about it, they're talking about it rather a lot. Yeah, yeah, they, I, I can, I, I kind of guess it. I mean, was, but there was that feeling, you know, you know that friend of yours who's broken up, and he's, I'm fine, I'm fine with it. You know, she, she's getting on with her life. I'm getting on with it. I'm actually delighted we broke up, and all he ever does is talk about her and that weird gish that she's gone out with now. And not that I care. Like, I mean, she can do what she likes. I don't care. There was an element of, uh, you know, I don't care. But what are they doing now? And also, there was, did you know, I, 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 I don't know what this number pertained to. I assume this was the cost of the coronation and the broadcast to the BBC, not to RT. There was a figure of 100 million going around. And then there are all these people going around being shocked and horrified that they're spending 100 million on this. Well, first of all, the English slash the British or the United Kingdomers can spend their money on what the hell they like. And if they want to do it on that, oh, really, what business of ours? And not to be that guy always, but if we're spending 9.6 billion on NGOs, 
Completely, you know, well, not completely, but very largely outside of the purview of anybody within the state, and certainly without the, the desire, the consent of the taxpayers that actually pay that nine point. And then for us, all these, and very often members of the same set NGOs, curiously, having paroxysms, spending 100 million. And they always, do you ever notice the correct metric for, for, for usage of public money is either nurses or hospitals? It used to be like countries, it used to be the size of Wales, and then it became the size of Belgium. The correct metric is for how many nurses you could pay for it, and then if it's getting to larger figures, how many hospitals you could build. I always think units of measurement are interesting, but the correct unit for measurement for the waste of money is nurses and hospitals. Can't be with the days when the correct measurement was arms budgets. <laughs> yeah, an army, yeah. A better time, Michael. You could have bought 75 howitzers for that or, or had another 120 most recent leopard tanks or 10,000 infantrymen and 2,000 cavalry. One, one thing I wanted to go into, Michael, and this is from Red Sea. It came out there during the week. I'm not sure if it got reported upon in the press. Um, it probably did. I, I didn't see it, but it might have got mentioned here. But it's Red Sea's a consumer... Uh, mood monitor oh, yeah. for uh, Q2 of this year. And there are two figures in it, Michael, that I think are very, very bad for the government. Because um, we've talked a, a lot about, Michael, before um, what people vote on. And I've generally been of the opinion that people vote on their quality of life, on how they feel they are and how they feel they will be doing under you in the uh, in the future yes and when people talk about like housing and and health and all those things i just don't generally believe they're as impactful as people say they are beyond the extent to which they impact on quality of life so here's two stats michael so when red sea asked people if they expect their quality of life will be better in the next 12 months only 22 percent of people said they viewed that 48 percent of people said they felt their quality of life was lower than it was a year ago. This is a problem. And we know, we know for, well, we think we know that this is a real problem for, for, uh, for incumbent politicians because this is basically our version of a certain question that's asked and has been asked for a very long time in American presidential polling. There, and over the years, there has been a distillation of the wisdom that there are the two single most important questions that you could ask them about in American presidential polling is how they score on strong leader, which is very important. And the other one is, is America going in the right direction? Now, strong leader is not a big thing here because different system, obviously not presidential. But this question essentially is, is the country going in the right direction? And the strong sense that this poll is showing is that people don't believe it is. And that is historically problem. This is bad news for incumbent governments. Um, the, but the, I think the weird thing, but the reality, which has evolved over, I suppose, the last 10 or 15 years of the Irish political landscape is, it's not immediately obvious to me, Gary, who is going to benefit from that. I mean, I'm talking to people in Fine Gael who say a combination of rural resentment, but also pretty significant number of incumbent retirees. So, you know, incumbency is, a, is an advantage in Irish politics, Gary, you know. Well, uh, uh, some 
constituencies more than others, particularly in some of the rural constituencies. Incumbency is a is a big help. Losing incumbency in a lot of places, they're fr- they're, they 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 are terrified that they are going to get absolutely scotched. And then Fianna Fáil may end up actually doing a little bit better than they expect to do because a lot, they're they're meeting traditional Fine Gael voters who say fed up with Varadkar, fed up with the direction of the party, and they're just going to vote for Fianna Fáil because they don't actually want Sinn Féin. They've decided they don't want to take that risk. But Sinn Féin are not, they don't look like they're reaping the dividends that we would have expected them to to off the back of this kind of decline in the support for the government. In fact, their numbers are coming off their peak, if anything. They're not, their, their trend is slightly down or flat. In relation to Sinn Féin, what I would be actually very interested to see is they're remaining roughly stable or, or falling back from their peak, but they seem to have kind of settled in, you know, in, in the low 30 range. But what I'd be very interested to see, and I haven't seen the sort of detailed polling that would be required for this, is are they remaining static? while keeping the same mix of voters? Yes. Or are they losing voters in some of the more working class demographics and gaining voters in some of the more respectable middle class areas? That will be very interesting. Also transfer their 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 transfer repellence or attractiveness and, and where the how that's going, that will be interesting to see on, but you need some fairly detailed stuff. My suspicion, and that's all it is off the Put it out there. Says that we may see a situation where Sinn Féin actually will end up doing well because I, I have a suspicion they're going to cannibalise the smaller left parties, and they're going those a lot. You're going to see second TDs elected on the back of the um, the elimination of the smaller lefts. But anyway, sorry, you going? So just on a, a couple of other stats that I think give an idea of potential problems for the government. So thirty nine percent of people say they are. Uh, struggling to make ends meet. Now that's down from 48% in October of last year, but that only brings us in line to kind of, you know, October 21, where we were 33% of people struggled to make ends mm. meet there yeah. uh, during, sorry, at, uh, on October. The interesting thing there, however, is in October of 21, 33% agreed that they were struggling to make ends meet. In January, it was 34%. But in both of those cases, the amount of people that agreed strongly with that uh, statement were 11 and 12%. In October of 22, when 48% said that they were struggling to make ends meet, 19% said they agreed strongly. And even though we've fallen now to 39%, 17% are still agreeing strongly. What's happened is the people who agree slightly are falling, but we seem to have roughly the same or increasing numbers of people who seem who are under serious threat that's interesting and then when we go into it and we you ask people you are you just satisfied with your quality of life a 42 percent say they are a 35 percent say they they are not then you go to you know is the government doing enough to help in october of 22 33 percent of people polled said they thought the government was doing everything it could to help that number has fallen to 24 percent now and the amount who strongly disagree with it has gone from 31 to 39%. And see, to me, this is this represents one of the dilemmas that the government has had. It, my sense of it from the beginning of this government was that they would go all the way. They would go, they would go as far into the five years as they possibly could manage uh, before they called an election. Now, there is a strong feeling amongst people inside the Beltway that 
actually we're going to see a general election before the next local elections because Sinn Féin will do well in the locals. They will pick up seats. Now, that's not to say that that will be a manifestation of anything other than the fact that Sinn Féin did very badly in the last local elections. I mean, I could, in here, I could think in my constituency, one Sinn Féin councillor lost his seat and in the space of whatever it was a year or so, went from not being able to get 900 first preferences in a council election to getting the guts of whatever it was, 15,000 first preferences in a general. So this, the, there's this belief that they, they won't want to allow a, a narrative where Sinn Féin are bounce, bouncing into a general on the back of a very successful local and that sense of momentum, and momentum is all the people have this, well, they're sceptical, but the big mo is really important in politics. But Gary, the problem is, the perception, as you showed now, is that the government isn't doing enough about it. Now, they may feel that the longer they stay in, the single biggest thing that's feeding into this sense of dissatisfaction seems to be the problem with housing. And rents. Now, there's worth pointing out, observe that, for example, the figures suggest that we are coming off the peak price in housing. Now, that may not impact immediately, or in fact, it won't impact immediately on the capacity of people to buy. But if this trend continues, that would be interesting. First, and secondly, the expansion in the supply is, is continuing. I was talking to somebody again inside the Beltway, who said you, you wouldn't believe the amount of money they are throwing at housing now. So they're faced with this choice. Do they wait and give their policies a chance to have an effect and, their Im and therefore impact on this sense that the government isn't doing enough and turn that around? But that involves taking the risk of waiting for the locals and then it involves the risk that their policies don't work, or even if they do work, that they don't get the credit for it. But I, my sense is that they're going to have to wait, whatever happens. If the figures regarding the government doing enough, good, good job, and going in the right direction, stay where they are, they're fucked anyway. It doesn't matter what happens to the locals. I think they have to wait to see those figures turned around. Yeah, I mean, yes, they're trying to spend more, although they're actually finding it quite difficult to spend more. There was a very good report that came out there during the week from the National Competitiveness um, Productivity Council. I'll put a link to it below. It's, it's actually quite worth looking at, but that goes into kind of our spending in various areas where we're kind of falling behind. There was one other uh, final uh, stat I just wanted to mention here, Michael, because it's kind of troubling. And it's this. They asked people if they had enough money to cover monthly costs without dipping into savings or credit. Yes. And 38% of people are using credit or savings to cover their monthly costs, which is to say that their income is less than their expenditure, which is traditionally, Michael, viewed as the opposite of what you want. Yes. It's pretty well Charles Dickens' definition of misery, isn't it? So it's a problem. If you're talking basically two-fifths of the population is either borrowing money or dipping into savings. I suppose you might say it depends on the, the context of that. Is this a chronic problem for them, or is this, an, or is it for many of them just a passing phase? Because if it's a passing phase, you say, well, that's why you have savings, because you're going to have moments. For but the problem is, if, it's, if it feels like a chronic issue, then it's a big issue. I don't think it really matters. It matters in real terms whether or not this is a temporary or a chronic issue for people. But I'm not sure politically it matters that much, at least in the short term. What I mean is, what I was, yeah, I want to, I, I care to say, what if it, 
to the people involved, if it feels if it feels temporary, then I think it makes a difference. But if it doesn't feel temporary, then it, it, even whether it is temporary or not doesn't matter. But if they if they, if this feels like a, a, a either a chronic or a, or a recurring problem, in, we we can get out of it, but we'll fall back into it. But then, yeah, whether what whether it is or not is is irrelevant. It's a it is a real problem. So one of the interesting things I this week was. Um... Leo's comments on hate speech and particularly the consultation on hate speech that he made asked, <laughs> yeah. um, about it by Ben Scott. Yeah, that was good. Which, for those who haven't seen it, I'll, I'll link the video below. But the basic gist of it was the government has been using the fact that there were thousands of responses to the consultation on uh, the hate speech bill to basically give a, a bit of legitimacy to the bill, you know, say, oh, well, we consulted with thousands of people, NGOs, organizations, yes. and we're moving forward with the bill. The problem is, is that when Ben sat down and actually went through the thousands of submissions that were there, over 70% were against the bill. So he went to Leo and said, well, you know, what is the point of a consultation if you are going to hold it and then ignore it? And Leo's response was basically, consultations are extremely important and we must hold them uh, in order to give the public their say, but also at the same time entirely meaningless because they can be easily corrupted and don't give a representative answer. <laughs> at which point Ben asked, well, is this not all just for show then, if you're just going to run it and if it disagrees with you, ignore it and do it anyway? Twitch Leo said, no, before a press officer stepped in. <laughs> so Threw himself on the grenade. It's very important yeah, it's very important that, um, you know, you be given the chance to talk about how you feel about it because you might say positive things about the government that the government could use in order to defend the policy. And if you say something that's against the policy, well, obviously it doesn't matter because they're democratically elected and you're just some randomer <laughs> on the internet. Did you notice the way he said that, uh, you know, well... Sometimes these things can be hijacked by groups or there was a sense that, you know, people with hobby horses could get involved and whip all their friends in, in, in into it and get them involved in it and writing all these submissions, you know. But Gary, is that not essentially what representative democracy is? Precisely that. A group of people get very interested in something and they decide to agitate for it and they they formulate uh, a series of responses to a problem, and they get and they go around and they get their mates and other people that they think might be interested, and they say to them, "We want to do this." And they go, "Okay, that sounds like a good idea," and they all get together in a collective action and they go off and they do it. And that's silly. That sounds, first of all, very like what, as I said, we call it a representative democracy. And secondly, how is that in any way, shape, or form different? To everything that would have been done by, say, the the Irish Council for Civil Liberties or the National Council for the Women of Ireland or for the trade union groups or for Together for a Yes or whatever, all any and all of the fine, progressive, well-funded, well-beloved uh, groups that would have been sending in positive submissions towards this, I I I I can't see the difference. And I'd be grateful to you with your fine metaphysical mind and your great capacity for finding dis fine distinctions. What the fuck is the difference between that and that bad thing and that good thing? It seems strange to me, Gary. You see, here, Michael, is the difference. 
These are respectable organisations which have legitimacy because they represent sections of the public. Or at least they, they claim to represent sections of the public. No one ever really follows up to check if they do because that would be, you know, untrusting. And who wouldn't trust the ICCL or the, you know, the Women's Council, Michael? They're on one side. They are respectable, reasonable people. They are stakeholders, Michael. Oh, stakeholders! Oh, the modern parlance. Stakeholders, cool. I understand stakeholders. Stakeholders are very good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they are solid, respectable people who can be trusted. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the public. Ooh, I've heard of them. I've heard of them. I've come across them before, Gary. Shifty, shifty. Don't like them. No, don't like them. Plebs, Michael. Plebs. The plebs, you see. This is what I would. You know what? When people say this, what you know what I always think of Gary? Julius Caesar, dead on the Senate floor. Why? Because he made the mistake of throwing his lot in with the plebs. Yeah. It never ends well. Never ends well. Shifty crowd, don't like them. The thing about the public, Michael, the NGOs and the stakeholders are important individually because they represent the public. But the public are only important en masse and when they vote. Because obviously, Michael, if the public come forward and say they don't like something, but the NGOs and respectable organisations tell the government that the public does like something and desperately wants something, yeah. well, the NGOs are the voice of the public. So regardless of what the public might say, if it disagrees with the NGOs, or at least the NGOs, the government has decided it will you know, listen to in relation to a particular policy, well then, that section of the public must not be representative of the actual public, which is, again, voiced by the NGOs. No, actually, Gary, sorry, but there, there is actually, there is, it, it's not that, they, that they're not representative. There is actually a theoretical explanation for this, that if you go back to, and I think you'll find it in Foucault, an articulation of it in Foucault, and certainly you'll find it in Gadamer and in Marcuse, what happens is, in certain situations in the historical in, in, in historical development, the consciousness of the proletariat has not sufficiently involved, evolved for them to fully and correctly understand where their interests lie. And therefore, when they support things which are actually against their interests and manifest false consciousness, what we need is people who are in the vanguard of the revolution, who actually have an evolved consciousness to bring them towards the situation which is in their best interests. And in that process of evolution, it may be the case that the proletariat will actually develop their consciousness and they may have a, they may actually come to the point of fully understanding where the things are. But it is, we have understood for a long time, this, this is a manifestation of false consciousness because of an under-evolution of their understanding of what their needs are. So it's okay. We we know why this happens. It's all there in Marcuse, Gadamer, Foucault. For anybody who wants to go and read it, it's it's all there. We know that. So that's cool. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So stakeholders, because stakeholders are very good, and yeah, yeah, this this is pretty bad. Stakeholders are very good, and also you know very respectable, which is important. The public sometimes just says things like some of the responses, Michael, to the public consultation. Uh, against hate speech said things like um, no fuck you eat shit <laughs> that's that's horrible that a, a member of the public could direct such a thought at a government bill which will massively restrict civil liberties that's not respectable what you need is a respectable person who sits there from the National Women's Council or the ICCL and says things like 
we absolutely support your right to do this and it needs to be done because the UN says it needs to be done and we obviously should give a shit what the UN says for reasons that actually escaped me during the middle of this kind of rambling response. Uh, but uh, very important, Michael, that we, we care about what the UN says uh, in certain areas, unless we're, you know, there's a benefit to not caring that we shouldn't care because it's the UN and like, come on. The UN is basically, the UN is like, is, is, the, is the kind of the McDonald's or the Coca-Cola or, or even the, or the Ralph Lorenzo if we're going to say this direction of, of policies, in that it's a brand, it's such a complete brand for them, that if they can attach their name to it, oh, well, the UN has said this, and the UN committee, and the UN subcommittee, and a UN committee in in, in the subcommittee of a connected committee in, in Geneva has said that they'll just love attaching it. 20 more years ago, when I started going around saying to people that we should stop, uh, for, we should stop paying our fees to the UN, in fact, we should leave it, and if we were bothered, we could set up our own organization. But we should certainly leave the UN because it was a morally bankrupt and ridiculously corrupt organization. I I entirely forgot when I brought up the UN what that was going to do to you, Michael. And I apologize for having started this, which I understand it's not within your power to stop until you've gotten it all out of your system. So please continue to discuss the UN. Until the pain goes. The, the position also, by the way, has a, a position on minimum unit alcohol pricing, Gary. If you want to talk about that and the UN, we can talk about alcohol pricing as well. Michael, given your recent health troubles, I, I don't feel I could in good conscience. <laughs> my my point, Gary, without going into it, 20, 20 odd years ago, everybody regarded that this is what that was simply a crank and eccentric opinion. Do you know the number of people I meet now who are not sort of Howl at the moon, loony types who actually have come to the position that the UN is utterly useless, but not in fact just utterly useless, but actually pernicious. It's actually growing. There are plenty because it's such a fucking useful cover for shit like this. Because again, I think that is that is absolutely unfair, Michael. Oh, how so? Who who else would you want if you needed to have people stand there and watch a genocide? I mean, no one can do that as well as the UN. That's simply, you know, they're world leaders in it. No, I think that's not necessarily true. They don't, I mean, it's not that they're, they're just standing there. I mean, they'll, they'll be trafficking prostitutes and they'll be engaging in child sexual abuse and they'll be, they'll probably be taking bribes or, and are giving bribes. I mean, they'll be, they'll be, do, they'll be busy. Gary's doing other stuff. And that's what I'm saying. They're world leaders in this sort of thing. Or, you know, maybe trafficking some children for sexual purposes. Like, I mean, yes, there are other people who do that, but the UN does it with a certain sort of pizzazz yes. that can only be done when you know you can't be prosecuted. You know, I, I regularly say, as I have, I have commented before, you know, about how baffled I am by things. But one thing that genuine, again, that does baffle me is the tone in which people say, well, the UN, as if, like a Catholic in 1900 referring to the Pope, you know, what the, the Holy Father said, and you're thinking... Why do you, why at this stage do you think that any kind of moral shred of moral authority or seriousness attaches to the phrase the UN? You know, the place where they all went to get, like, to get their, their, their standing ovations, whether it was Mugabe or Gaddafi or 
or Castro or whoever. <laughs> Thankfully, because the world has changed, there are more democracies. In fact, a lot more, there are far more democracies in the world now than there used to be. And therefore, consequently, there are far more democracies in the United Nations than there used to be. But it's still a large group of rank corrupt nations. I mean, this is the place. China and the United, and the Russia have are permanent members of the Security Council and can veto anything. They're, okay, let's stop, stop. We're not talking about the UN anymore. Let us move on. Uh, for those who, by the way, thought I was joking when I, I mentioned about the sexual abuse and trafficking of children and uh, the UN peacekeepers, I'm not. That's happened not just once, but actually multiple times in multiple it, different it, countries. It, it, it is a genuine... Quite like a, a number of times, actually. It Almost like it's a, just a, a, a serious endemic problem. Like it's a, it just Because it just keeps happening. Now, Gary... This may be a long lost battle, but I'm still stuck in the hold on lads. Can we talk about this whole thing about the idea that we're going to make an emotion illegal and the incitement to feel an emotion illegal? It has become such a commonplace part of the argo of our public discourse now to talk about incitement to hatred. This is an example of incitement to hatred. When I think that we actually haven't spent enough time just in a quiet place, sitting by ourselves, turning over in our little heads what that phrase means. He incited me to hate. That means he, he, he found a way of motivating me to feel something. And we're going to make that a crime. Using words, he made me feel something. And that's obviously something that we need to, to, to address in the criminal law. And we're going to send him to prison for two years and fine him £50,000 because he incited with his words me to feel something and obviously feelings are things which should be criminalized are we really happy with that are we really happy that we're going to make an emotion that we're going to say that this is it i'm not talking about the morality of the emotion gary the emotion or whether the rightness or the wrongness of it but the, the law is not supposed to be in at least in this very crude sense uh, an instrument of the state to make people be good to make them moral Incitement to jealousy, incitement to envy, incite. Do you know what? Actually, no. There is an example. There is an interesting idea. Gary McDonald's, right? You're aware of them. They're an American food prov provision company. They sell hamburgers and French fried potatoes. You know them? Yes. I'm familiar with their work. How about creating a crime that we could target at the them and the likes of them, not exclusively them. I mean, there are other large American corporations selling fried food to the young people incitement to gluttony because gluttony is both a bad thing because it's immoral because we know that because it's one of the seven deadly sins and gluttony also is something that makes you fat and we're very very much against people being fat because it's not healthy so there are actual practical serious practical health consequences which have costs scary money money for the health service nurses and hospitals could be built well not nurses could be built hospitals could be built Maybe you could build hearts, you know, AI. Well, how about that? What do you think? Should we, should we in the EBI start a campaign for the incitement to gluttony bill? I a, is that not a brilliant idea? Do you think of the, the sense of wonder and privilege the listeners to this podcast are having right now that they think I was there at the birth of that idea? The reaction that I liked most to the hate speech legislation was and, and we're not surprised we're not surprised gary was the for the sheer intellectual heft and brilliance of the response came from simon 
Harris, Simon the Professor Harris, as I like to nickname him. I, th- I like to imagine that in another life, I- he would have been professor, Wiccan professor of logic in Oxford and master, master of Balliol. When Trump and Musk have a different view to you, it's not a bad day at the office. Let's not engage in sort of just personal consume here. I How is that not the argument of a 12-year-old in the playground? Oh, well, I don't like him and I don't like him and he's smelly and they have different ideas. So I disagree with them. So there you go. I must be right. Seriously? It, uh, it actually, it, when I heard it, it reminded me of um, during the very early stages of COVID when Pascal O'Donoghue was asked, would the government stop Italian fans from coming over to, I think it was a rugby event. It was, it was rugby good. He said that we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that because it would upset the Italians. And I thought at the time, this is at the very early stages of COVID, but it, we were starting to see things in Italy. Yes, were very, pretty very bad. bad things in Italy, yes. Very elderly population. It was, it was just bad. I remember thinking that's one of the most childish things I've ever heard a politician say. No, we're not going to uh, step in to deal with this, what looked at the time to be a very, very dangerous uh, in, uh, virus, uh, because, you know, it might upset someone. Uh, one, I don't think it would have upset the Italians at all. But uh, two, it is just incredibly childish. But Simon Harris is just trying to claw his way to the number one spot with this. But it's also incredibly predictable. Yes. And I mean, I, John McGurk was talking about this last week, that the government were in fact blessed that the only people who care about this are people on the right. Because they can just do this. They can just sort of wave it away and say, oh, well, you know, what would you expect from these people? And the fact that um, it passed so strongly through the doll means that it's what people are saying about this bill being a threat to civil liberties is incorrect which is a i've got to say a, a it's good to see a, a, a politician with such a faith in the parliamentary process michael yeah that the mere fact that the doll would pass this legislation so strongly means that there's nothing to worry about nothing to say here also he said that um <laughs> he brought up the fact the bill was passed 110 to 14 and uh, said there's not much that the opposition and the government agrees on and use that to indicate that oh, there was no problem with the bill and because everyone agreed and it couldn't be about stopping freedom of expression or policing thoughts or anything like that. Yeah. Which, I don't know, I just, I, I take a certain degree of amusement in. Yeah. Unconnected but not directly. Did you see a report that was published uh, during the week which said that we have the second highest level of press freedom in the world, only second only to Norway. You know, I don't doubt that we do have a free press here. I, I, I'm sure we do. I, I, I suspect that actually if the people doing this fully understood the way the defamation laws work in the country, not just in theory but in practice, that they might have thought it was that was a problem but i don't i don't doubt we have a free press here uh, i would i notice also this survey was done before this hate legislation has won, rather than after so that that might knock us down a point or two i don't know but gary what i found depressing about it in the context of uh, this and the time oh where we are is in fact the, the look how we came second press and, and all this nonsense this catastrophizing about the state the, the whole point is, you know, we, we often quote that, the, 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 the famous phrase from the English phrase, why would you bother to bribe a British journalist, an English journalist, when you, when looking and you, or when you see on bribe what he will do? The problem with this country is 
I would like to see the government scrambling to introduce some kind of controls of the press, desperately campaigning to introduce censorship, because that would mean that they had a problem with the press, that they had a problem with the media, they had a problem with journalists. We have the per- we ha- we are gone way beyond. Why would you try and control these people? Why would you bother? Why would you introduce legislation? Why would you have guard dogs? They guard themselves. These people are the. These are the. This is the ultimate Stockholm syndrome. These are the. These are the. These are the prisoners inside who are, who are, who have the keys to the prison, but are desperately, desperately terrified they should ever leave the prison. They're never going to get out. We, of course, we have a free press. The government doesn't have to worry about the press here. The only time they, the only time they start to look sweaty is when Ben Scallon asks them a question, and yet again the joy of that was the look on his face. And the only time, at this stage, I've seen that four times, and on each occasion it was because they were being asked a question by Rift. And that tells you exactly why we have such a free press here, because there is no need to control them. They are utterly bought and sold, which I'm using in a metaphorical and figurative sense, because you don't even have to pay for these people, not with cash money. One of the actually most interesting things... uh from sending people to press conferences is talking to them afterwards about how the press interacts with politicians when they're at press conferences but not on camera basically you know the private conversations that happen before and after and just the personal interactions between uh, different politicians and journalists um, because they are incredibly friendly which is not surprising the a lot of the Irish media is built on the idea of access you know, you become friends with politicians and then they inform you that things are happening or that the opposition are doing things or that sort of thing. And that's not something you tend to do um, while being antagonistic. The Journal, by the way, when they reported on the um, Simon Harris's uh, comments, had a line in which I don't think they intended to be funny, but I found it very funny. And this, by the way, is, is not really a problem with the Journal. It's just really the, the, the issue of, of the bill. So they're saying about being found with hateful material and how they'll reverse the burden of innocence, Michael. Yes. And that the controversy has, has erupted surrounding this section. But the journal then say that, um, that the bill allows for strictly personal use. So possession of such material is allowed for strictly personal use. I love the idea that of, of strictly personal use of anything, Michael information you 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 can have a strictly personal use of information without committing a crime wow and that's the that that's if that's not the definition of a liberal democracy i don't know what is okay you couldn't give it to your friends but you can keep it at home and you can sit up late at night gary looking at information and facts just for your personal use and what you want to do with that you know that's a you know it's a private man Laptop, we're not going to do it. But, you know, you wouldn't want to be shown it to people. Children might see it, Gary. Children might see facts or information. God knows what would happen there. But also also the idea that you you can have this information for strictly personal use. Strictly personal use. But if you're found <laughs> in, 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 in you know, possession of this material for strictly personal use, the state's going to assume, until the country is proved, that you intended it for distribution. So you, you can technically have it for personal use, strictly personal use. But um, if the state finds it, they're going to assume you, you meant to show it to other people, which is uh, just a wonderful concept. 
just just fantastic. It, also, there's a circ- there's a fucking circularity about this. I remember many moons ago having a discussion with one of my Italian friends because initially it was the case. It may have changed the law since auto certification came in that you had to you had all Italians get any any registered Italian anyway gets an identity card, right? And there was a law that you had to carry your identity card with you at all times. And I said, we don't have identity cards. And I, he said, well, what happens if the police stop you and they demand to you identify yourself? Well, you just you tell them who you are. How do they know? Because you don't have an identity card. They said, well, why would they stop you? He said, well, they'd stop you to see if you're carrying your identity card. And I said, well, you don't think there's a certain circularity that they wouldn't stop you if you didn't have to have one, so you don't have to have one. You, they don't have to stop you. Listen to this. This is Mr. Brown. This was in, in reaction to the, uh, he was saying he did not support the amendment from Murphy that would have deleted the demonstration uh, from the proposed law, leaving the more traditional criminal law challenge of having to prove motivation. The use of demonstration test in hate, improving hate offences, listen, will make it easier for Ungarda Shiakana to investigate potential hate crimes from the beginning. And the hate element of the offence can be presented and challenged in court if deemed appropriate. If deemed appropriate. This is not the top police. This is about holding people accountable. Again, Gary, I go back to the point. We're being held accountable for what? We're being held accountable for hatred. Now, at that point, we return to a previous thing. We still haven't got a definition of hatred, Gary. We're going to be held account for hating people or inciting people to hatred. But if, for example, you were to pick out a, a prominent person who was involved in the media, whatever, that was a trans person, a say a male to female trans man or a man a female a male to female trans woman, if you were to say, "I think that person is a man or that person is a woman," referring to their biological sex rather than to their gender presentation. Or if you were to dead name them, I ask a question we have asked before here, Gary, is that hatred? Now, I know that people in Tenney and other advocacy groups would say that it is, that it is hateful, it is hate, it is transphobic, and it is all sorts of very bad things. But would most people consider that hatred? Or would they, even, even if it is hateful, is that something that people think should be criminal? Or criminalized. Well, we don't know. That surely is at the end of the whole thing the single biggest problem with this. We don't know. I think we're going to have a lot of time to come back to this, Michael, as it continues. We will indeed. Shall we have a very brief look at the very exciting results from the opinion poll? Yes, I think the the summary of this, Michael. Uh, this is the new Ireland Thinks poll. Is that you know sometimes it's. Yeah, sometimes maybe it's advantageous to just be forgotten about, I think should be the, the summary here, at least from Fianna Fáil. So the poll shows Sinn Féin on 31, uh, no change, Fine Gael on 20, minus 2, Fianna Fáil 19, that's plus 3, Independents and others 13 plus 3, Social Democrats 5 minus 2, Labour 4 plus 1, Solidarity People for Profit 4 plus 1, Green Party 3 minus 1, and Ain't 2 on 2 minus 1. Apparently, Michael, the, so- uh, the Social Democrats have lost much of the ground gained when Holly Cairns became its new leader. And you know what, Gary? I think it's been a lot of people have been very unkind because they've gone down two from this, and they were two from before, and they were at nine. That's five. 
because she arrived and she was a breath of fresh air and she is a young, attractive, energetic, engaged young woman. And now there's, you know, and I think those people who said that the fall off has was occurred because that she got all this political uh, attention, all this media press, and people actually heard her speak and and listened to her for the first time ever. And that was, and, and as a consequence of actually having to listen to her and her ideas, that the collapse in the support for the Social Democrats happened. I think that's unkind and unfair, and I would never say that. But other people have been saying that, you know, I believe in a free press, Gary, so they should be allowed to say that. But yes, the Social Democrats decline continues. Labour up one, that's not a phrase you hear very often. And up one is <laughs> up one to four means that Labour have increased their, their their representation in the polls by 33%. You know, so well done to Labour. The Ivana bounce, Gary, is happening, finally. That bounce is, and it's not a dead cat bounce, it's not, not even a, a decayed cat bounce. I, I think, Mike, what we're seeing here is an increase due to that uh, Labour rep Printing out those badges oh. describing uh, herself and presumably other Labour supporters as uh, what was it, baby killing pronoun wankers. Yes, I think Labour should fully lean into this approach. It can only do good things for me. And in those traditional heartlands of the Labour support, where they were before you know they moved into the urban areas and and, and took over that Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party uh, vote. Uh, places like Wexford, you know, the, the the Corish seat, the Paterson seat in Kilkenny, the old Tracy seat, which was recovered by Kelly, the the Spring seat in in Kerry, the, the Sherlock seat in Cork. These these traditional bastions uh, of uh, extra urban, extra capital labour would go down tremendously well. I'm curious to see how it'll, how well it'll go down in Sligo Leitrim. If it will be, I suspect it will go gangbusters, Gary. Uh, hey. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece of uh, political uh, manoeuvring there, which I'm sure, I'm sure it will reap it will reap dividends. People before profit up one, good for them. The greens, Gary, the greens keep going down. It's it's a mystery. It's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, they have relentlessly good ideas. I mean, the fertility of the greens when it comes to the good ideas. Did you see there was a? a I don't know if it was actually you call it a proposal more than thinking out loud. Wooden Green in Galway was saying, uh, inviting us to imagine what, how wonderful it would be and how much space we could create along the promenade in Salt Hill if we were to charge a flat parking fee of €50, Euro, which I think is a lovely idea, isn't it? And I'm sure that the tourist uh, businesses of Salt Hill were uh, very engaged by that and thought, what a tremendously good idea. And imagine, indeed, all of the space you could create for uh, the people that didn't go to Salt Hill because there was a £50 charge for the parking. Also, imagine how lovely the people that were willing to pay £50 for parking would be. And isn't that really the upshot and the benefit for so much of this? Because you don't ban cars and you don't ban planes or you don't do any of the bad things. What you do is you just make them so expensive that the people who really shouldn't be going to Salt Hill and spending their money on chips and, you know, arcade games don't go because they can't get there because we're not going to provide public transport. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll stop them driving 
and we'll talk about public transport, but we won't actually provide it. That would be silly. But the nice people that can afford it would still be able to do it, you know, which is cool. It is a beautiful day here where I am, Gary. I don't know what it's like with you. So I am not going to release the uh, listeners into the freedom. I'm going to release myself into the freedom, and I'm going to go for a walk. And I may even go and look at the sea. So I think I should. we should draw a veil over it there. I wish the uh, listeners a happy, sunny day. And we shall return next Sunday with more exciting stories. So when you say you're going to look at the sea, do you mean with pleasure or like a woman waiting for her husband to come back from the wars? I shall shake my fist angrily at it and complain like an old man in a deli trying to return soup. We will see you next week. Bye.